The Carleton Center for Public History is a designated Carleton University Research Center, which encourages, promotes, and facilitates the study of public history, cultural memory, and historical consciousness. The CCPH Alumni Interview Project invites current public history graduate students at Carleton to develop relationships with program alumni and showcases the talent, diversity, and achievements of Carleton's public history program. For more information, please visit ccph.carleton.ca. Hello, I'm Lena Crompton, first year MA public history student at Carleton University, and I'm here today meeting with Alex Kotler, an alumni of the program himself. So Alex, how did you become interested in public history? Okay, well, um, public history, um, I mean, one of the main reasons was actually I applied to do my master's at Carleton, just a straight MA in history, and uh, they came back with a much better funding package for public history. So suddenly I was converted to <laughs> public history. But, but seriously, I actually had a really long love of museums. Um, even growing up in Halifax, I'd attended the Citadel and the HMCS Sackville, Canada's Second World War Corvette, and uh, I'd crawled all over all sorts of ramparts and forts and hidden areas that the public doesn't usually go, snuck out to <laughs> islands, uh, was climbing around old ammunition hoists from the Victorian <laughs> era. So it was... Uh, it was pretty, uh, pretty interesting stuff I always found. I just never thought I would kind of end up there, actually. Um, I saw myself going a more straight academic history route. Um, so yeah, historic sites, also air shows when I was a kid. Uh, a love of anything military, also anything that moved or made loud noises, um, locomotives, <laughs> uh, railroad equipment, um, and yeah, big passenger planes. And so that's pretty much, I mean, I guess that's how I honestly get my love of museums. Um, other aspects of public history, um, well, I, I guess I would stick with museums, especially archives I had no pre-existing relationship with before. Um, not a good sense of even what a place like Library and Archives Canada did, even throughout my uh, undergrad. I mean, really. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, there you have it. That's, uh, that's the answer for public history. So then, uh, when did you graduate from Carleton University, and what did, kind of history did you study uh, while you were at Carleton? Yeah, okay. Um, so, just, uh, yeah, checking, <laughs> checking my CV here. Because, uh, I graduated in uh, 2007. As I recall, it was um, it was kind of a two-year experience and maybe a little bit of change on the two years. Um, and it probably is the same thing now, where you have the first year, which is pretty intensive coursework, then you have over the summer an internship, and uh, the internship is really critical. And then the second year, you're kind of refining your, your I think what would be called nowadays your major research paper. For us, it was a bit different because there was a lot of coursework, and the research paper at the end was massive. It was mine was 110 pages, so back then, yeah, like it was it was a very intensive experience. Um, anyway, so I graduated in 2007. Um, while at Carleton, I studied um, international history, European history, I guess you'd say, and specifically interwar uh, the history of France. So between the wars, and uh, I mean. Basically, they had to come up with a lot of directed readings course yeah. for me with, with uh, 
my supervisor, Dr. Susan Whitney. And uh, so we, we kind of stumbled through French history together. Um, and uh, it was, I mean, it was a very, well, wonderful experience. Um, how have my research interests changed? Well, I think as a result of real life experience, um, they've kind of rationalized. Uh, <laughs> there's like, re Canada. <laughs> realistically, like, this is one of my biggest advice elements maybe that would come up later is if you're going to pick a topic and you're in a Canadian university, you should maybe pick a Canadian topic in public <laughs> history because otherwise you will have a lot of woes later in your life with employment. Yeah. So, I mean, I never traveled over to, like, you know, well, I, I did actually, but I never lived in Paris. I never lived in Aix-en-Provence where the uh, overseas former colonial uh, records of the old empire are for France. So, that never happened, so I, you know nobody would employ me based on that. Um, but uh, happily, because of mostly my internship, uh, I kind of transitioned a bit to Canadian military history, mostly 20th century, uh, mostly First World War and Second World War. So, um, I mean, that is the only reason why I think I've I haven't withered on the vine completely yeah. related to history. Is you, you really should pick a topic that, <laughs> that relates to some area theoretically that you could ever be employed in yeah. in Canada. So, uh, so um, where was your internship, if I may ask? Ah, okay. <laughs> Not surprisingly, um, my internship was at the Canadian War Museum. Yeah. <laughs> in, uh, in 2007, it was still a very recent museum. Mm. It had been opened, uh, I think, in uh, 2005. Yeah. And uh, basically, they needed somebody to go through the entire basically record electronic record of the exhibitionary text of the permanent museum so all the galleries all four galleries from prehistory all the way up till peacekeeping ops and i guess um the early afghanistan war stuff because um, this is 2005 when the museum was built um le breton gallery where they keep all the large artifacts the tanks the big guns, the plane on the pedestal, the voodoo jet, that's what I'm talking about, um, and, uh, and uh, even even the dedicatory plaques that, you know, certain organizations like the Women's Royal Canadian Naval Service uh, paid for parts of the museum or, or gave donations, yeah. and so they have these little plaques that are scattered all over the museum, some even on the roof. Mm -hmm. um, so I had to hunt down all the plaques. I was checking what was actually physically installed on the wall versus the electronic records versus the actual original printer records um, from two different printers because <laughs> midway through they had problems with their UK printer which I think was called Haley Sharp yeah. so they transitioned to a Canadian uh, sort of exhibitionary text panel printer uh, that was a hell of an experience because I got to learn every single word that was on permanent display in the museum. I had to go over the English, I had to go over the French. I was checking things like accent aigus and everything else. And I found um, a fair amount of errors which helped the museum make itself a little more credible, professionalize yeah. what it was doing, because some of the typos were pretty, like, just horrendous clangers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so there's some pretty bad stuff there. But it really helped me because I really familiarized myself um, just with the way the War Museum went about presenting what it considered the experience yeah. of everyday people in warfare um, 
So, yeah, just regular Canadian soldiers, sailors, airmen, um, and, and female personnel in a variety of services. So that's kind of, that's where I did my internship, and uh, it was throughout the, the whole summer, and then I guess they liked me enough that they brought me back on a series of very short-term contracts in, into the fall, Yeah. at which point my studies became so intensive trying to churn out my research yeah. paper <laughs> that I, I couldn't continue working for them. Yeah. Um, yeah, so basically that's that's the story. Yes, the internship, and uh, I mean, I, I really fought to uh, to get the War Museum. It was by no means a sure thing, and uh, so I was really happy with with the placement. The internship was one of those kind of events in your life that really would maybe change your direction. I guess. Yeah. 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 Well, it sounds like that was a really positive part of your time at Carleton, yes, but do you have absolutely. any other like fond memories of your time there and in the program, and what did you feel that Carleton was able to provide you with? Well, Carleton, one thing that was really positive about it was it could provide a really good network of contacts. One mm -hmm. thing I know that the public history program has done, um, is Paul Litt still the head yeah, of it? Okay. Is, um, I mean, he has, you know, real experience on the Ontario um, Sites and Monuments Board, I think, the yeah. kind of designation, similar to what Parks Canada does on a federal level. So he's got some great contacts. Um, David Dean had some great contacts. Del Muse had some phenomenal contacts as well. Um, so in terms of a museum located in the national capital area, uh, what you want is a good you know, sort of network of contacts related to some of the big federal agencies in town, mm -hmm. the big departments that are involved in some way in heritage or the heritage industries, um, and obviously the national museums. Yeah. So, and that I think was what, you know, Carleton could really offer. So, anyway, mm -hmm. that, that, that's, oh, fondest memories. Also, uh, <laughs> in my year, we had an absolutely terrible uh, dodgeball team. We, oh, my we, year too. <laughs> yeah, we, we formed a graduate student bunch of the most like reprobate, horrible dodgeball players ever. So you know that was appreciated. <laughs> I guess that kind of stands out. Um, yeah, that, that's about it. Well, it's nice to know these experiences transfer through time as well. Yeah. So um, you were talking about the federal agencies and all the, the excellent connections that uh, Carleton can give you being in the national capital. So where do you work now? And uh, what qualities of the program did you find helpful in uh, your employment? Okay, well, that was actually a question I prepared very little for. Actually, nothing. <laughs> um, right now, I work um, at Library and Archives Canada. Uh, I think... Carleton's public history program has a very fine record of um, getting uh, students, graduates, into indeterminate positions at LAC. I'm not quite there yet, so I've <laughs> been working several years at it, but related to my museum's experience, I have a very different background. Um, but, I mean, my wife, Catherine, who was the same year as I, uh, I was, um, and... Uh, Several other students from the year after us, Jenny Wilhelm, uh, Jenna, uh, I think her last name is Murdoch, um, and there's a few others, uh, sort of found gainful employment at LAC <laughs> in indeterminate positions, which is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, if you look at across the board since about 2006, 2007, when they started making cutbacks in a lot of different areas connected with heritage, um, I mean, to place, you know, sort of that many people is, is actually phenomenal. So in terms of qualities of program um, that I found helpful 
in my employment? Well, I mean, I guess we'll talk about my worm museum experience maybe later or as part of this question. Uh, in terms of right now, um, I can tell you that when I was going through the program, I never thought I would be related, involved in anything related to archival, uh, mm -hmm. like things like macro appraisal, um, functional analysis of government agencies. They meant nothing to me, absolutely nothing. Um, and so I really wish I'd taken at the time Andrew Horrell's um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Andrew Horrell, but he had a kind of an archival studies course yeah. in the School of Public History. So, uh, like for example, my wife took that course, yeah. several other people took that course. <laughs> um, I didn't take the course, and now I work uh, two desks away from him. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> a a Andrew always had a job at LAC, yeah. so, so he's a senior archivist at yeah. LAC right now. So anyway, it's it's been pretty pretty funny, pretty odd situation in life to come back to. Um, but yeah, so so that's an example of something that uh, I guess didn't uh, that I really regret not taking. Um, I mean, okay, well, seriously though, a quality of the program that I did find helpful was it really, the program, especially the way it was organized when I went through, really made you produce. You really had to produce a lot. I mean, there was a lot of coursework, there was a phenomenal amount of reading, I'm sure it's still the same yep. way. I like, I, you know, would read until 2 or 3 a.m. the night before, and I had started at dinner time, like I wasn't, and, and I had... I parceled it out. It wasn't just the like last minute, but sometimes you just had to read and read and read and read. And uh, I guess I made a decision early on that I I would not be one of those people that didn't do the readings because I was quite frankly terrified of being caught out in the lie. And so I just I just did them all all the time. And uh, so things like you know learning how to get through a, a chunky document in a decent amount of time uh, without missing any of the key concepts. Um, but also producing the major research paper, just producing a document that was like that, that was academically oriented, well-written, well-cited, that went through several processes of review. Um, uh, I mean, that, that's that been very helpful to my subsequent work. I'm not sure I could have produced my deliverables in a range of contracts for the War Museum, for other folks, for the Agriculture Museum once. I did a massive annotated bibliography for them once um, if I hadn't had that experience. Because coming out of undergrad, if I had done any of that, it would have been a joke. It would yeah. have been like a pasted thing from Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that would be it. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. That's well, it's good to know that it's all for something. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I think you can, you can apply this question to uh, any number of the jobs you've had, but what okay, is your good. favorite aspect of some of the positions you've held, and what have you found the most challenging as well? Hmm. Uh, okay, well, that was the kind of... So some of my favorite aspects are just going through the donor records, um, going through the institution's history of itself, of how it built its collection. Like some of the war trophies records uh, from right after World War One are just phenomenal, what you see that they brought back. Um, a lot of it, you know, went missing or was dispersed or went on display in communities across the country, uh, like Big Cannon, for example. There was this program where the... Uh, Library and Archives Canada at the time, the Dominion Archivist spread these things all over the country. Um, and he was trying to, he had this Canadian War Museum in his mind, and so he wanted to save the best stuff. It ended up going sideways for him, which it, it often has. But like World War II, um, the 
pretty famous Canadian author, Farley Mowat, mm-hmm. was on the uh, Canadian uh, collecting mission for the Canadian War Museum. And he was part of, yeah, he was part of the first field historical section. Normally, a field historical section writes a kind of an as-it-happens history of the war. So today, Canadians bridged, you know, this uh, this um, canal in Holland under heavy fire. You know, it was the first instance where we did so-and-so. And it was almost, it, what is so interesting about that is it really is, they're trying to evaluate historical significance as it was happening. Yeah. Which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, they have fascinating war diaries, those groups. But Farley Mowat was given a job of going across Europe and basically pilfering, grabbing, hanging on to anything cool he could find that was kind of like uh, enemy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so he got a midget submarine that's on display now at the War Museum. He got all sorts of, I mean, just very bizarre things. He tried to bring back a V-2 rocket, which is a huge rocket, like space rocket ship looking thing. <laughs> and uh, it... I think it, it ended up rusting on an Air Force base or something. It was a, it, there's plenty of tragic stories, but mm. but just knowing some of those stories was some of the best. Like that's probably my yeah. favorite aspect of my position. Um, working with things like, I mean, six weeks ago when I was there, I was trying to identify the Sidewinder missile I was talking about yeah. because it actually matters if you get the right mark, the right type, the right variant, like what it's armed with what the propellant is on the missile all that stuff is important and like we as a well the war museum as a credible institution needs to actually get that right Mm -hmm. but one thing i guess it's the material culture that i absolutely love i really love finding interesting stories about the artifacts letting them you know i see it as trying to let them tell the most interesting story that they can which i should channel and pass on (laughs) yeah well, it all sounds like a dream come true for any public historian. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, again, giving us hope that there's stuff out there. Um, do you volunteer with any other organizations? Uh, do you have the time in between trying to find all these contracts? <laughs> uh, I don't have a lot of time. Um, I, you know, I, I should, and I know other people. Uh, Erica Reinhardt, who uh, who is uh, was in the same year as I I was. Um, she's worked at LAC and uh, a few other places. Um, she volunteers at, I think yeah. it's the museum of, is it, there's a new, like, workers museum yeah. in Ottawa? Yeah. I think mm-hmm. she volunteers there. Um, I know somebody else that's an interpreter at the Kane War Museum named Santa, who's yeah. also... Yeah, she's in, in my program, yes. Year Above Me. Right, yeah. right. Well, I mean, she and I have kind of interacted over the years. As, is she still at war or not? Uh, I think off and on. Okay, yeah. all right, yeah. But yeah. mostly but, at um, <laughs> Yeah, but, yeah. so, I mean, I think it's a great thing. I haven't... I haven't done it. Um, it. Had I not got that internship, I should have at some point volunteered for the War Museum, and I still might, especially if things are ever progressing. I mean, just to be, they have plenty of friends of the Canadian War Museum yeah. to help out uh, at things like getting through the cataloging backlog in yeah. the library. Um, and I mean, they contribute on a like on an amazing level, uh, <laughs> you know, day in day out. So. Yeah. Um, I would really encourage people to volunteer, though, because uh, it's a good way of getting into institutions that you might not normally get into. Uh, mm. There might not be the opportunity for the internship placement at a particular museum, but often they'll take on volunteers. And obviously, when you're a volunteer, if you can actually talk shop with anyone, 
you know, related to your historic, your deep historical passion for whatever institution that happens to be, yeah. then yeah, by all means do it. So mm. that's just some of my advice. Yeah. So do you have any it. other advice you might want to uh, offer to new public history professionals entering the workforce? Absolutely. Yeah. It's probably <laughs> the most important thing I could possibly say is that, um, well, first of all, when you're doing your studies, I... When I was doing my studies, I became very interested in, you know, interwar France, which was mm -hmm. fair enough. It was fascinating. Um, and certain modern developments that were happening in contemporary France, which to me suggested that they were having problems dealing with their colonial legacies, like the riots that happened with yes. people overturning <laughs> cars in the suburbs. But I would strongly encourage people not just to put their heads in the sand academically and run down their own topics and only think in terms of their own topics, you really, really, really need to not just study, not just read, but network. You need to network. It was, I think, Ryan Shackleton, who's another real public history professional that came up through Carleton. I think it was before there was a public history program. Um, he's really good friends with the Cold War historian at the War Museum, Andrew Birch, but Ryan Shackleton came in front of us in the Underhill yeah. room at one point, and he sort of said something about networking and how important <laughs> it was, and I dismissed it and went right back to my studies or drinking in Mike's place or something. And actually, like, that's the most important thing you can possibly do is whenever there's any kind of social mixer or... I mean, for God's sakes, the conference, you know, like, get out there um, at the conference, present, or, you know, chair a session or whatever, but make those those connections, because it, when I look back at it, the, the, probably the number of opportunities I squandered or was not aware of, like, would just, like, it boggles my mind. Um, I mean, had I not just luckily happened into the War Museum position afterwards, I wouldn't have realized. I, that's how I built my network, mm -hmm. was kind of after. And during, during the internship, to be fair, I did build an, a, a network at the War Museum. So, you know, and it helped me. But even in the studies, in all the other events that you possibly can, you need to be proactive, you need to be out there, you need to network. Um, you need the, somebody, some relevant professional in the discipline um, out there in the heritage field is going to remember your name somehow mm -hmm. at some later date. So if you can correspond with these people, you know, keep them, keep them updated on details of, <laughs> of your life. You know, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I guess things like um, develop a LinkedIn profile—that's yeah. helpful. Uh, I mean, if it's if it's embarrassing, uh, if you've got you know nothing, then don't start with the LinkedIn profile. <laughs> maybe, but you know, it took me a while to kind of. And, and I mean, I, I have seen that there have been people that have subsequently hired me that have taken a look at the LinkedIn yeah. profile. So I guess it is important. Uh, early on, LinkedIn, I, you know, I thought it was probably a useless tool. Probably everyone else did, too. too. But <laughs> it turns out, yeah, it has its uses. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the actual physical networking is way more important. Um, yeah. So that's my biggest piece of advice. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll end this up with a fun question. Uh, what is your favorite unique representation of the past that you've seen most recently, and why? Okay, well, two things. There is, a, there is something I thought of, but two things that I'm looking forward to. 
um, is uh, the Aviation Museum, I guess it's now called the Canada Air and Space Museum, mm-hmm. um, is coming out with a Star Wars display. <laughs> and if there is absolutely no sort of historical um, input there, it's going to be unfortunate. But, I mean, there are inspirations in the whole Star Wars thing that are from, especially like the uh, Nazi past. Like, there's a reason stormtroopers have gas masks on their belt that look exactly like World War II (laughs) stuff. There's a reason their helmets look like M35 style helms from the Nazis. Well, sorry, the German army. Yeah, but um, so that could have some sort of very interesting, yeah. unique representation of history. I don't know. That's how you get the kids gonna... interested. Yes, yes. I don't know if it'll explore George Lucas's thinking when he came up yeah. with some of this. But uh, anyway, and I'm also really looking forward to uh, Peace, which is coming up at the Canadian War Museum. Uh, Peace is cool because it's been delayed now for like two years. It was supposed to open years mm-hmm. ago. So related to the terrible war museum strike of uh, one of their two unions, at the time I was um, PIPS, uh, Mm -hmm. which is, I don't even, I can't even get, but it was PSAC, which was usually the curators, the collection staff, and all the public programmers. They're the ones that went on strike. So I was working on my own exhibit at the time, which meant that I was the only person in the entire building on the basement level, which was terrifying because, like, if anything had ever happened to me, no one would have known for yeah. a long time. <laughs> but anyway, um, peace was almost shelved as a result of that strike, like permanently. But uh, it's it's about, I guess, the roots of peace advocacy in Canada. It's about certain peace movement uh, principles, like uh, ban the bomb, for example. Mm. Um, it's about conscientious objecting in both world wars. <laughs> Um, and it responds to one of the biggest criticisms, I think, of people, which is, uh, I, I had another contract, which was bizarre. It went through all the visitor comments at the War Museum. Mm. And one of the things that people kept on asking was, like, well, a War Museum's great, but why can't we have a Museum of Peace? Yeah. And it was just such a, I think it was a cute before. throwaway yeah. thought a lot of the time. Because yeah. I'm not sure that they were actually serious. But at least this exhibit responds to that. Yeah. Which is that, yes, like, you know, peace advocacy. And I think, you know, peacekeeping will factor in somehow in peacemaking, mm-hmm. um, obviously, into the exhibit, which will draw more heavily on the War Museum's usual shtick. Mm-hmm. You know, its areas of collecting or whatever actually reflect peacekeeping ops. But in terms of, like, kind of hippie protest yeah. movements of the 1960s, normally that's way outside of their comfort zone. Yeah. So it's it's pretty fun. It's uh, very looking forward to it. But the coolest unique representation of the past I've experienced recently... Actually, this isn't cool at all because it's a board game. So actually, I guess it just confirms <laughs> my lameness. But um, it's there's a board game called Settlers of Catan. Settlers of Catan has released all sorts of... And it's created by this guy named Klaus Tuber. So they've released, I guess, variants of the game. And one of them is called Settlers of Catan uh, American Expansion or something. Really? So it basically is about mid-19th century America, so on the eastern seaboard, and basically the expansion westward. Yeah. The settling of the Great Plains, pushing through to the, uh, the Pacific, you know, all this sort of stuff. So... You do very unsettlers-like activities in this game. You, you're in covered wagons, you settle, <laughs> you settle city sites, and then you develop a huge rail network. And, yeah. and the object of the game is actually to deliver goods 
to uh, your opponent's cities, which I, I don't even understand. I still don't fully know if I'm playing it right, because I've only played it twice. Sounds but, too collaborative. Yes, but it has this little potted history of America in the mid-19th yeah. century, and it's just so hilarious what you're doing, because, I mean, it doesn't refer to some of the most important things, like A, there were actually people on the land prior <laughs> yeah. to late settlers pushing westward, and what happened to those people? Well, yeah. you know... They even have a resource card that's a, no, it's a cavalry, and cavalry allows you to steal two resources from one of your opponents. And if you think about what cavalry was doing during, like, especially the post-Civil War era, yeah. the Indian Wars, the Seminole Wars, I mean, the massive kind of pacification campaigns, which some of which were absolutely horrific to indigenous peoples, um, I mean, to not, you know, I, I just, that? like, yeah. you could not even get away with that in Canada with, with like, arguably at least a more redeemable history with engagement with its own Aboriginal peoples. Like, we didn't, you know, well, <laughs> do almost <laughs> genocidal campaigns against them. So, yeah, it doesn't mention that. Oh, yeah, it leaves out an important thing that happened in the years 1861 to 1865, like the U.S. Civil War. <laughs> there's, no, there's no talk about the Civil War. If you're in the South, there's no resource card that is slaves, which would be, you know, pretty helpful. And then they talk about, it's just such a glib, everything's fun, wagons westward yeah. version of it. Like, it's, it's worse than a John Wayne Western, because at least... <laughs> John Wayne Westerns, the wagon train, usually got attacked by, you know, <laughs> by the, the natives, yeah. which at least was some representation, not just being left out of the whole narrative completely. Oh, and they also talk about Manifest Destiny, you know, yeah. the, the, I guess um, America's God-given right to yeah. settle westward, and yes, Turner's Frontier yeah. Thesis. So it all, it all comes up in strange ways, but it's just, like, hilarious to... Uh, I mean, if you produce an exhibit like that, you know, you would, yeah. <laughs> you would I don't know what would happen, yeah. but the stakeholders would, yeah. License revoked. Yes. yes <laughs> Your degree yeah, revoked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that's my uh, favorite recent yeah. unique representation, very, <laughs> very, very unique, unique representation yeah. of the past. Somebody should totally write uh, an <laughs> MA research paper or something on it. Yeah. 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 Well, there you go. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Thanks so much, Alex, for sharing your... Uh, your experiences and your time with us today this has been a great help and gives me uh, lots of uh, at least trepidatious confidence for the future and the future of this degree program thanks so much 